Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about Cata, Cata, let's talk about Catalina Island, there we go, I knew I could get there, boy, I'm, I'm like two seconds into this episode, and I'm already screwed up, but the volume's up high, people say they like it, so if you're saying like, no, it's too loud, I, I can't help you, I just can't help you, and if it's still not loud enough, Go get a hearing test because there's got to be something wrong with you. I mean, I, I can only do so much. I'm worried about you is what I'm saying. All righty. Shout outs time. That's right. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormal almanac. Uh, listen, the, the patrons and I had a lot of fun this past weekend. And I got to thank, I got to do two special shout outs ahead of it to Todd and Jamie Hendrickson because they came over for the dumbest reason possible. I got something mysteriously shipped to me that was very heavy, very expensive to have it shipped. No return address to my home, which again, don't do that. I got a, I got a P.O. box, uh, but to my home, and it was a uh, purportedly haunted item, and it was really packaged well, and it was, it just seemed too good to not share with all of you, but especially with the patrons, and they came over and went like, yeah, fuck it, let's open this thing up, and, and let's see... See what's in there and see if we die. Uh, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but two special shout-outs to Todd and Jamie Hendrickson. All righty. Shout-outs to everybody else, Go although going to uh, Tom, Lobito Works, Glacier, Isabel, Jen Jen, Stacy, Tamara, Tamara, Amber, Gary, Tracy, Matthew, Sandy, Kelly, Joe, My Grands Crypto. I don't know what that means. Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot Webcomic, Sandy, Paige, Kosh, Sean, Andrew, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal Animal, Alicia, Becca, Jake, and the Beasties, Jen, Elizabeth, Voidtech, Sherry, Artmuthan, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Armor Times 10, I like that one, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that, Carrie, Ezra, Robin, Will, Lorna, Phil, Mangano, hey, howdy, hi, I was just texting her in a second ago, Russell, April, Isabel, Audrey, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, the Sean Bishop, hey, howdy, hi, and aloha, Stacy, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scostin, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Matten, Megan, Matt, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, the Lawrence Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, Veronica, Autumn, J, Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Laura, Pitts, and GamerFan. With two special shout-outs, as always, to Joe Teague and to Stitch, my boy. And and a rum because she's a she's a just the best she's the best girl ever and uh, she's she doesn't want to really be part of the show like rum, like uh, Stitch did but rum is you know rum's the best so shout outs to rum too because frankly it's my shout outs and I want to do it alrighty let's get right into paranormal news. I love that one. Again, if you want to send in your own bumper music, just send it to paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Uh, and yours can be heard on the show as well, especially coming up 200th episode. I want to have new bumper music just for that. Uh, yeah, send it in. Anyhow, first story in Paranormal News, rare book predicting alien life discovered in Cotswold. A rare book predicting alien life could sell for thousands at auction. The book, published in 1698, was found at a free antique valuation event in Morton in Marsh, Gloucestershire, by books valuer Jim Spencer. Inside, author Christian Hugens 
explores his fascination with the potential existence of extraterrestrial beings. 1698. Remember that. Uh, this guy said its content seemed almost comical. The book's lengthly, lengthily entitled The Celestial World Discovered or Conjectures Conzer Concerning the Inhabitants, Plants, and Productions of the World in the Planets questions why God would have created other planets just to be looked upon from Earth. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's, he concludes that aliens must have hands and feet like humans because of their convenience, writing what could we invent, what could we invent or imagine that could be so exactly accommodated to all the designed uses as the hands are? Shall we give them an elephant's proboscis? The fuck are you talking about, dude? He also suggests that uh, celestial beings must have feet unless they find out the art of flying in some of these worlds. Okay. The writer believed aliens enjoyed astronomy and observation, sailed boats and listened to music, but also suffered misfortunes, wars, afflictions, and poverty, quote, because that's what leads us to invention and progress. All right, um, Kurt here. I think I've had enough inventions and progress. Can we stop with the wars and poverty and inflictions and shootings? That'd be swell. The book is considered such a rare find, it'll have a guide price of two to 3,000 pounds when it goes to auction in July. It's fascinating to think that who turned these pages in 1698, what they must have felt when reading the descriptions of life on Jupiter or Saturn before gazing up at the night sky. He said the antique book's content seemed almost comical, but was informed by scientific reasoning at the time. And who knows how our thoughts on these matters will appear to people looking back in 324 years. All right, Kurt here. If you're from 324 years, exactly 324 years in the future. So what is that? Uh, 2,346. So if you're from the year 2346, and you're listening to this podcast, and you have the ability to email me, please email me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com and let me know what you think about my thoughts on these matters. And do I make any sense? We already know the answer to that one's no. But, um, yeah, I thought that was really cool. I would love to get a, a gander at that book. I'm not asking someone to buy it for me. Just don't worry. Already up next in Paranormal News, from the Charlotte Observer. Was that triangular shape object seen flying over East Charlotte a UFO? This is what we know. Uh, that goes on to say, let's say, social media user said, please tell me if anyone in the East Charlotte area saw a triangular shaped UFO about an hour ago. It was drizzling and I was heading to 485. Saw it, saw it at the light by Big Owls. Most were skeptical. A few who commented in the post were confident that the object in the sky was a flying saucer, but it was triangular shaped, so not saucer. So, eh, strike one. There's got to be some earthly scientific evidence for this one, but I'm all for this being the real thing. I'm dying to know what kind of life forms are out there, as are all of us. Would have loved to have seen it, someone else said. Okay, great. Some pointed out that planes departing Charlotte Douglas International Airport were flying lower than normal because of the severe weather in the area. One commenter even provided links to maps that showed two flights that took over that two flights took over Abermarle Road just west of Interstate 485, suggesting that the object was probably just a plane. When planes come in at a certain angle, they can look as though they're hovering or zipping straight up instead of forward. It's weird. Last February, multiple people in Indian Trail saw an odd string of lights in the, in the sky in the area, though. According to the National UFO Reporting Center, there have been at least nine potential UFO sightings in Charlotte since 2021, including one sighting in January. So I guess the answer is, it is un unidentified. We don't know what it is. Up next in paranormal news. What are the chances we've already been visited by aliens? Now, this story gets popped up, you know, pops up, I'd say, just about every year, er, every other year. I've, I know I've talked about these kinds of stories before, but let's read this one. Congress revealed a lot of new information about UFOs, but none of it was conclusive. Big shocker. So the question is, have we been visited by aliens or not? On this question, the hearing was by no means definitive. As unsatisfying as that may be, we did learn a few things, not the least of which is how sharp how to sharpen our thinking about this subject. Um, can't be explained by observer error, but, but there do seem to be vehicles phenomena going many times faster than U.S. military craft, stopping and turning on a dime, showing no visible signs of repulsion, and operating in ways that appear to violate standard understandings of aerodynamics. Um, so get to the answer here. It is safe 
to say, and recent conversations with knowledgeable people have led me to believe that the U.S. government has standard radar and satellite evidence of these phenomena. If these moving vehicles were pure phantoms, not showing up in any other sensor ratings, why would the government have held these here? Yeah, of course not. So let's get to the goddamn question. Conclusion. All right, here's the case for aliens. Alien visitation of the Earth is to be expected. It's been expected for pretty much forever. So yeah, I mean, logically, statistically speaking, and scientifically and logically speaking, yes, aliens are real. I mean, there's just no chance that they're not real now because there's billions of planets that could ha- that could habitate them. Uh, two, alternative explanations are not holding up. That's very true. These are high-level military people in our government and other governments saying the same things. Some top U.S. leaders seem to think aliens have already visited us, including former CIA director John Brennan. Um, when I interviewed him in 2020, while former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama have noted that alien visitation is a possible cause, but don't say specifically, that's not shocking. So, yeah, I mean, it's just saying the same stuff that we always say, that I always say every week is, you know, chances are, yeah. Do we have proof 100%? No. Will we probably ever get 100% proof? Oh, sure. I mean, disclosure is happening little by little and very quickly, I might add. But as of right now, there is no 100% conclusion that we've been visited by aliens, even though, as you know, if you've only listened to half of these shows, come on, there's too much evidence that we've been visited by aliens. And it's not just some like woo-woo. I know a lot of people, as soon as you say that, they always go like, okay, crazy person. Whenever someone sees me in my jean jacket that has all the patches on there, they go, well, do you believe in aliens and UFOs? And I go, yeah, and here's why. And they always stop listening before the and here's why. As soon as they hear yeah, they just go, oh, this guy's crazy. I mean, some people say, oh, I agree, and I, I, I've seen one, but the majority of people say, this guy's crazy before even listening to the evidence that's already been collected. All righty. Next up in paranormal news, this 1968 pamphlet uncovers how the Air Force used to handle UFO sightings. In 1968, the Air Force, Air Force wrote a pamphlet to help people identify the source of the UFO sightings. It veered people away from extraterrestrial angles, instead suggesting that their sightings were caused by perfectly natural phenomena. Today, the Department of Defense is an entire group, we already know that, um, let's get to the actual thing. Oh, I see what it is. So this whole thing is like, oh, you see this shiny object that looks like a UFO in the center of the screen? Well, it could be a refraction of the sun's rays or swamp gas. So basically this whole thing is just going through and trying to tell you, I know what you just saw when the UFO landed and two aliens stepped out, but what you really saw was your neighbor taking out trash while... An Airstream trailer was driving by, you know, like they're trying to just get you off of it. That's cute, but not newsworthy in my opinion. So let's move on. Lots to get to. UFO legend, horse found dead and mutilated 55 years ago in Colorado, gets new life in roadside attraction. Snippy is long gone, dead 55 years now, the victim of something or someone. The tragedy remains a debate, though there's not so much here in the San Luis Valley. Here in this sparsely populated valley of big starry skies, the consensus is that a gruesome scene happened in 1967. Ask around, it seems everyone here has some UFO story. The one about Snippy is the most famous of them all, a local legend that has captivated people far beyond southern Colorado. It's only fitting that the Appaloosa's bones now find themselves here at the UFO Watchtower, which is Mezzaline's roadside attraction. For the first time in decades, Snippy will be returned to display. This summer, the plan is for for her to move into a building, Messaline specifically built, attached to the viewing dome. People have come to know all along Colorado 17 as the Cosmic Highway. Oh, it's kind of sad still. Um, Everything that's been added to the UFO Watchtower over 22 years, the campground, the mystical garden, the sightings recorded in the pages of a binder, Snippy is the most exciting She's either joking or serious when she adds the skeleton was almost the most expensive. Some people say that Snippy was listed on eBay for up to $50,000. Wow, holy crap. That's really crazy. Um, If you want to know more about Snippy the horse, they say Google it. But be forewarned, you'll come across some gruesome images. I wanted that to be very clear. Yeah, you can go to it, but it's gruesome. It's like a cattle mutilation, but with a horse. And it's really freaking sad. 
I don't care what animal it is. You know, those mutilations are really freaking sad. But if you're one of those people that are very into these alien or UFO mutilation cases, well, now's your chance to see Snippy the Skeleton Horse. Long live Snippy. Alrighty, up next. Go UFO hunting in Iowa in 1993. This was written two days ago, by the way. In May of 1993, residents of Alexander, Iowa, witnessed something mysterious in the sky. Those who captured it on a camera described it as a light that could only be a UFO. Was it? To this day, we still are not sure. All right, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to move on to the next story. Um, never mind. Moving on. Paranormal convention surprise guest announced. No, it's not me. It is the amazing Kreskin. Kreskin. That's right, Connecticut's original and greatest paranormal convention announces surprise guest of honor, the amazing Kreskin. That is actually really cool. Paracon 2 returns to the Asonia Armory, Asonia Armory, 10, 10 North State Street, Asonia, Connecticut, for two days only, Saturday and Sunday, July 16th and 17th. Advanced tickets are now on sale at paracon.ticketleap.com slash paracon2, and that's paracon with two N's. The Haunted Weekend will feature special guests, seminars, panels, vendors, exhibits, and much more. Organizers have just announced Paracon's surprise guest of honor, the amazing Kreskin. That is actually very cool. Um, This show's for that. If you don't know who Amazing Kreskin is, look it up. But, hey, Paracon, you know what else would be a cool special guest there? Me. Kurt Sandvig, host of Paranormal Almanac, top 100 paranormal podcast in the world. It's listened world over. All righty, up next in paranormal news, The Conjuring House in Rhode Island has just been sold. This happened seven hours ago. One of America's most notoriously haunted houses, located right here in Rhode Island, has been sold. The Conjuring House, located at 1677 Round Top Road in Burrillville, went on the market with an asking price of $1.2 million. But the Wall Street Journal reported the sales price was higher than that at just out over $1.5 million. The closing is scheduled for Thursday. So if you bought that for me, first of all, thank you very much. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly appreciate it. Um... Yeah, you know, you didn't have to buy it for me, but I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I will do a live episode with you and a uh, party there. Sounds great. So thanks for buying that for me. Alrighty, with that, let's close up the paranormal news bag. And, uh, well, let me first go over to merch. So go to tpublic.com slash store slash paranormal almanac. Just look for paranormal. The link is in the Facebook pages every week. But... The newest 200th shirt, plus a couple bonus shirts, but a new limited edition 200th shirt has just been added. And I like this one as well. I like them all, but this one I I like. It has just been added. So check it out. Those are limited edition only. As soon as the 200th episode is done, out, released, I'm going to be taking those down. So... If you see something you like, now's the time to get the the limited edition ones. Otherwise, you know, the regular shirts, they're there for you. And it's all merch. It's not just shirts. There's 200th edition, uh, 200th episode, uh, limited edition, you know, patches and masks and stickers and all kinds of stuff. I don't know if there's patches. I think I just lied about that. But there's stickers and all kinds of stuff. I mean, what I'm trying to say is go and check it out. There's a lot of merch there. Uh, 200th bumper music. I already talked about that. We need that. Um... I already talked about that. So let's get to the actual, um, before I get to the story at hand, the episode at hand, I wanted to talk a little bit about the unboxing. I wanted to give everybody an update because not everybody checked out the patron-only live unboxing I did of that haunted object. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like I said earlier, a package was sent to me to my house with no return address. It was heavy as hell. It was ginormous. And inside was a letter. Uh, taped to this package. And the letter basically said like, hey, we unearthed this in a uh, under in the dirt, underneath the dirt of a dirt basement, basically of this farmhouse. Once we unearthed it, strange things started happening up to and including a fire. I hope you know what to do with it. That's the, you know, if you want to read the whole letter, it's pretty much everywhere. It's on Facebook. It's on Patreon. 
but uh, it was very intriguing. And I said, oh, this seems very neat, very interesting. Not the normal things that people send me, which I love, don't get me wrong, but maybe I need to do an unboxing video. So I did. This past Saturday, I believe it was, at 2 p.m., Jamie and Todd came over, and uh, we did an unboxing video. Uh, Jamie filmed it from one angle. The patrons saw it from another angle. It's now since been updated. I didn't realize that stupid sound, I don't forget what it's called, Soundcast, Chrome Star, whatever the thing it was that the Patreon said, hey, make sure you film it using this for live videos. Didn't really work that well, I'll be honest. Didn't really work that well. Um, and it ended in like 30 minutes. It didn't, they didn't warn me on that, and I had to pay for it. So it's all been re-uploaded into Facebook. If you do want to watch it, there are like two parts or maybe even three parts where you can watch everything. You can see the total unboxing. It was bizarre. So underneath this packaging, this, this brown packaging that was taped up, completely taped up. You couldn't, it was not one spot that wasn't covered in tape. I cut it open. And there's a wood box, and it is an old wood box. I'm talking like 1800s wood box. It's been hand lathed. Like everything about this box just screams early 1800s, and it was obvious that it was underground. It was very dirty, had to been underground for an extended period of time. Now, I don't know anything else about like if they had opened the box, because it was it did have a lock on it. Um, if they had ever opened the box or if they just sent it to me and because of the flood in that in the in the the basement, that water had caused the box to swell and maybe pop open that lock. But it was stiff, but I did manage to unopen it without having to, you know, take a screwdriver to it or whatever and unlock it. But I did manage to open it. And we opened open up the box and there in the box was this thing wrapped like a freaking mummy. It looked like a forearm or an animal or something wrapped mummy style in this really tough, really old gauze and dirt in the box. Like the box was filled with dirt. It was in the dirt of the box. So I start cutting or not cutting, but unraveling this thing. Very worried that at, at first I was like, oh shit, someone sent me a body part or a dead animal or a dead baby. Cause it box kind of looked like an old coffin. Like this is going to be bad. And I'm going to have to call the cops and explain to the local PD why I'm, you know, <laughs> desecrating this. But we open it up, and almost immediately, once I lift it up, I was like, nope, this is heavy. So the box package part of it, total, weighed 23 pounds. What was in it was the majority of that 23 pounds. It was a, we're guessing, bronze, very um, tarnished or whatever, you know, old-looking bronze, and it's got green all over I'm trying to look at it right now. It's got green all over it. But what it is, is it's a three-clawed bronze thing. Very reptilian-looking claw. It's got a circle in the palm of its hand that looks like it's part of a, uh, for like a candle. And then you get down towards the bottom, towards like where the forearm would be of it, and it's tiny skulls all the way around it. Like what, three rows? Two rows, three, no, wait. Two or three rows, I can't really see from here. Two or three rows of skulls, and it was incredible looking. And it was definitely old. You look in the inside of it, and there's like a white crystallization. Not Again, not like quartz crystals, but like it's been sitting somewhere forever. This thing is old. It is definitely handmade, and it is definitely quality. It is not like some cheap cast kind of tin thing that you could find at like Renfair. I mean, this thing is solid. So we take that out. We're like, holy crap, we're passing around, looking at it. It's incredible. And I start sifting through the dirt. Because like I said, that box is about half to three quarters filled with dirt. And inside we find, I don't know what you call them, a program. When you go to church, they give you that little, you know, the paper that tells you what you're going to be singing and all the psalms and everything. I'm sorry, I don't know what they're called. But this one is from Westminster, Westminster Abbey from 1935. And I've since found out that it is legit. It is not a repop. It is legit as far as they can tell. And it's exactly, you know, what it should be. Um, so this had a very old church program, whatever you call them, from 1935. Sifting through the dirt, we also found a St. Patrick um, medallion. Like, you know, you'd wear on a necklace kind of a thing. Um, charm. And it's from New York City because it said on the back, New York City. It says St. Patrick's. Um, and on that Westminster Abbey program, it talked about Ireland as well. So we had two things connecting it to Ireland. 
Sifting through some more, we also found a 1919 penny, American penny, wheat penny from 1919. And then a photo, <laughs> and that's my favorite part of it. There's a photo of a woman from the 20s, maybe. I'm guessing the 20s. Some people say 30s, 40s, but I'm guessing it's the 20s just based on her clothes. But I can't really tell because her head has basically been faded off from this photo, whether by, you know, you know, the uh, the flooding or whatever they poured in the box because there was definitely something, I think, alcohol that was poured in the box. I don't know what it was, but it's very sweet smelling. And every time you still open the box, it's very strong. Um, but then there's this photo of this woman standing on a deck maybe. I, I mean, people are like reading a lot into it. They're like, oh, it's definitely from the Titanic. And it and it it ties in because she would have came over from Ireland to New York and then got off the Titanic. I mean, they're like really doing some backstories, which I love, but I'm trying to just do what I could see. And, and what you can see is there's a woman, can't see her face, in 20s, 30s outfits standing somewhere. And it's really neat as well. And it's def definitely a legit old photo as well. So... Why was this sent to me? Again, they hope I could do something with it. They said it was haunted. Nothing is nothing bad has happened since I've had it. I don't feel like, you know, like I'm I should be nervous because the claw is behind me right now. No, I don't feel like that at all. It's just a claw. It's just it's really neat looking. Um, I've since thrown out the dirt. I sifted through the rest of the dirt, and then you know the dirt is now part of my backyard. Uh, there's nothing in there. And everybody's like, oh, you should have got the dirt tested. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't have like, I don't have like a CTU. I'm not Jack Bauer. I can't be like, test the dirt. We must analyze, zoom in and enhance. Like, no, I don't have that kind of stuff or money to have it done. Um, plus, I live in a really small place. I can't, I can't keep four pounds of dirt in my house. Um, I did get rid of the gauze just recently because the gauze is just gauze. Yeah, maybe I could have taken a snipping of it and sent it out to be tested to see how old it was. But again, those tests are very expensive, very expensive. And everything else that's inside this box, including the box, leads to these are legit old items. No one made a fake 1919 penny. No one made a fake 1935 Westminster Abbey church program, whatever you call them, brochure. Um no one made a 1920s or 30s photograph. I mean, these are legit old items. So I didn't think I needed to keep that stuff, but I wanted to give you guys a little wrap up in case you have no desire to ever go on any social medias and you wanted to know what the hell happened and what was found. Well, there you go. That's what the hell happened and that's what the hell was found. It was very, very neat. But I, ultimately, I had more questions than answers. I would love to have found, and if you're listening, if the person who sent this to me is listening, please if you have to mail me an envelope with the answers, that's fine. I'd prefer email, but get back to me and let me know, did you guys open the box at all? You know, where was it found? What state? How old's the farmhouse? Like anything that you can give me more info on how you found it, or did you just unearth this box and then weird shit started happening and you just mailed it to me? Because it doesn't look like the hand was ever unwrapped. The claw was ever unwrapped. It looks like it was mummy wrapped just as tight as ever because it took me a little while to get into it. It really did. It was crazy how well wrapped it was. And again, when you open up that box, there's a definite smell to it. And if you ever, if we ever have like a live show, if I ever do that live show that I've been talking about, which still up in the air, but if I ever do that live show, I'll bring the box and the claw if you want. And you guys can get photos with it and you can smell the weird smell and, you know, touch the supposedly cursed or haunted claw, but uh, it's very neat. If you guys have any other haunted items you want to send me, sure, send it over to my P.O. box. I'll put it, I'll find the address and I'll give it to you guys again, but uh, send it over to the P.O. box for the love of God. And also give me some info. Like I need, I need more information is what I'm saying. So the P.O. box for you guys is Paranormal Almanac or Kurt Sandig, 1812. West Burbank Boulevard, number 7102, Burbank, California, 91506. That's Paranormal Almanac, 1812, West Burbank Boulevard, number 7102, Burbank, California, 91506. That is where you should be sending me crazy, weird, cool, crazy stuff, haunted items, whatever you want to send me. Please send it there. But it was really neat. Thank you to whoever sent it to me. 
Um, I'll keep an eye on it. It'll definitely be behind me for all the live shows, the online live shows and whatnot. Um, but it just left me with more questions than answers, and I would love to talk to you. Maybe that's it. Tonight, it is uh, May 25th. Tonight at 7 p.m. Pacific time, I am doing a live show, and a live online show, because everybody wanted to do those again, and I miss talking to everybody, so I'm like, yeah, I want to do those again. So if you want to call into the show, that is completely anonymous. I might ask you to prove you are who you say you are, because I do know a couple of things from that outside box, the packing container. But um, I just want to know more. Like I said, you left me with more questions than answers. All righty, with that, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Paranormal Almanac. We are back on this edition. This is something that I've wanted to talk about for a while because it is one of my favorite islands. Now, it's mostly because I haven't been to that many islands, but it's also because it's a cool place. How many islands have I been to? I mean, sure, I've been on, like, Caribbean cruises with my family, so I guess I've been to a handful of very nice Caribbean islands, but um, and then Manhattan is an island, but uh, I've never been to Hawaii, so I've been to a few islands, but... Of the few islands I've been to, I really, really love Catalina Island. It's just off the coast of Catal- of Southern California. It's very, very pretty. It's a cool place. It's got an awesome Hollywood history, but an even more awesome paranormal history. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Catalina Island. and shit, UFOs. Yeah, uh, as the song just said, Catalina Island is only 29, they said 26, it's actually 29 miles off the coast of Southern California, Long Beach to be specific. Hell, on a clear day, you can actually see it from the shore. Obviously, if you're on Catalina Island, you can really see it, but I mean from the the shore of mainland California. So why are there so many UFO stories connected to it? Well, spoiler, I don't know, so stop asking. Um, First, let me give you a little bit of detail about Santa Catalina Island. It's 22 miles long. It's 8 miles wide. It was originally inhabited by the Tongva tribe, who called it Pimu. Then it became known, well, mostly it became well-known because of William Wrigley Jr., Yes, of the gum Wrigley's, you know, like the Wrigley's gum, that kind of an error in the 1920s. He made it a tourist destination. Nowadays, 4,096 people live on the island and also a fuck ton of buffalo live on the island. Oh, you might also know it as the place where Natalie Wood was murdered at. Yeah, that's right. I said that, Wagner. Murdered. Okay. So that's all well and good, obviously, apart from the Natalie Wood stuff. But why am I talking about Catalina Island? Well, because of UFOs primarily for this episode. The Santa Catalina and San Pedro Channel, you know, basically the water between Catalina and Long Beach or Catalina and San Pedro, have more than 150 documented cases of UFOs and USOs unidentified submersible objects. Now, I will say, there are some people online who have drawn a line from Catalina to Long Beach and then Catalina to San Pedro, and they made the worst tiny little triangle ever and said, ooh, it's proof, there's another triangle. I'm going to stop right there and say, no, I don't think there's a triangle, but there is something going on in that channel, in that water between California or Long Beach and Catalina Island. All right, so where do I begin? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not with the unsubstantiated Spanish settler stories. There's a lot of websites that say that the first people that saw UFOs were the Spanish settlers way back in the day, and there's just no details. There is nothing that tells me it could even possibly be true, yet it's regurgitated online over and over and over. Spanish settlers saw UFOs. Maybe. Who knows? Not me. So instead, I want to give you 
a bunch of eyewitness accounts. Basically, this entire episode from this point forward are going to be eyewitness accounts of UFO, USOs over and around and in and under Catalina Island. So let's travel back. Sorry, got to get my travel back music in here. Hold on. Let's travel back to July 8th, 1947. Now, in case this this date doesn't sound familiar to you, July 8th, 1947 is the date of, I don't know, something called the Roswell UFO crash, something about like a flying saucer was recovered, was printed in a paper. No idea. You know, I don't, you think that would be a bigger story. But uh, besides this tiny little thing called the Roswell UFO crash, something else happened over in Catalina. On the front page of that week's issue of the Catalina Islander, there was a story about an alleged sighting by three visiting Army veterans of six flying discs traveling at high speed from the northeast and passing directly over Avalon. Just to let you know, Avalon is part of Catalina Island before disappearing over East Peak. Again, Catalina Island. Now, according to the story, the six discs appeared at about 1 p.m., flew in formation of two, uh, two sets of three, that is, and they were witnessed by not only the veterans, but by hundreds of people on Catalina Island. Alvio Russo was one of the reported witnesses. He was an Army Air Corps veteran who had flown 35 bombing missions over Germany with the 8th Air Force. Now, he estimated the speed of the disks to be 850 miles an hour. He said it was way faster than anything we ever had. Now, Bob Jung, he was listed as a formal, former aerial photographer, and he agreed with Alvio about this, this speed. He said they were flying roughly as fast as the U.S. Navy's Tiny Tim rockets, which he had photographed numerous times for the Navy. These guys know what they're talking about, especially at that time, knew exactly what we had and what we didn't have. And it is amazing that this story doesn't give the, get the attention that it deserves because hundreds of people on Catalina Island saw six flying saucers. At that same time, flying saucers crashed in Roswell. Yes, I know. I was teasing. I was joking earlier that I didn't, I've never heard of Roswell. I've heard of it. You don't have to email me. Be like, Kurt, how do you not know about Roswell? I did a fucking episode about it. But at the same time that this is happening, these were spotted by hundreds of people. It's incredible to me. And it definitely kind of blows even more out of the water, that stupid bullshit theory about it being, uh, you know, Russian weather balloons or weather balloons in Roswell, all that bullshit and mannequins. No, thanks. That's just dumb. But, um, all right. So that is the first most amazing thing for me to go. We got, again, we have people that know what they're talking about. People that have seen things that have military expertise that witness these things and hundreds of witnesses. That is key to me. So from there, we move on to April 28th, 1949. Now there were a couple of spots in 1948, but I think that you know, for, for detail-wise, I want to move straight into April 28th, 1949. There was a, this was redacted, civilian from Boise, Idaho. He was visiting Catalina, and he made the following report. About 8 o'clock on the night of April 28th, my wife and a school teacher saw six objects in the sky, not in a group, but singly. Again, six objects again. A few minutes later, after going to my daughter's home on the next street and corresponding block, She and my daughter and my grandson saw four more, all traveling in the same direction. The gentleman basically says, If you are still interested in flying discs, saucers, etc., please let me know and I will write more in full. But sadly, nothing that can be found that the Air Force ever did anything with that. Uh, It was Project 10073. That's what the, his sighting was labeled as. And it said insufficient data for evaluation. Um, that's very sufficient data. Again, multiple people saw this. All righty, from there, let's head to 1953. That's when engineer Frederick Hare. All right, 
Kurt here. Let me pause for a second. I'm probably going to do an episode about Frederick Hare in the future because he's, hmm. Well, let's just say he has a lot, a lot, a lot of connections to the paranormal and UFOs. And, well, let me just read you the story. Let me continue with the story, and then I'll tell you why I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Uh, The story goes that he and several others were at Santa Monica Beach when they saw a squadron of saucers, again, very cool, performing maneuvers in the daylight sky over the ocean. Later that day, the object returned and returned, oops, returned and performed more maneuvers for a period of about 10 minutes. Here's the thing. There are a lot of stories by Frederick like this. So, yeah, you know how I say like grain of salt? Well, how about grain of salt for every grain of sand that he was standing on at the beach when he saw this squadron? Because this squadron happened over one of the busiest beaches in Southern California in broad daylight, twice. And the only ones who reported it, that I could find anyway, and I looked a lot, were him and his friends. Nobody else noticed, saw, reported. There was no police. There was nothing. And again, if you don't know, Santa Monica Beach, they have the Santa Monica Pier. It's this huge, long pier with like roller coasters and rides and carnivals and shit like that on there. It is packed, absolutely packed. I get it that it was 1953. It probably wasn't as packed, but still one of the most popular beaches in Southern California and only him and his few friends saw these squadrons of saucers performing maneuvers in the daylight over the ocean right there. I don't know. But I wanted to add it because it was on there and I can't dispute it right now. So uh, let's move on to August 8th, 1954. That's when the Japanese steamship Aliki, I guess, It was off the coast of Long Beach. Again, Long Beach to Catalina. That's how you get to Catalina. You go down to Long Beach, you get on their little um, boats, shuttles, whatever you want, and they, you know, book you over to Catalina. But uh, Aliki was off the coast of Long Beach when several members of the crew observed an underwater UFO. Now, the radio messages from the ship read, saw fireball move in and out of sea without being doused. Left wake of white smoke Horse erratic vanished from sight. Now, this one I really liked because it was coming in and out of the water. It was lit up like a fireball with smoke. Horse erratic. So it wasn't a meteorite falling into the ocean. It wasn't bioluminescent algae because that just stays on the water or, you know, splashes with the waves, but definitely doesn't leave a wake of white smoke. Everything about this says they saw something Man-made, well, you know what I mean by man-made, UFO. They saw a UFO flying in and out of the water, which we don't even have things that can do that nowadays, let alone in 1954. All right, moving on to July 10th, 1955. Not even out of the 50s yet. Around 11 a.m., several fishermen off the coast of Newport Beach observe a bluish-silver cigar-shaped object flying overhead at a moderate speed and medium altitude. Two and a half hours later, the Washington family were in their boat. They were about 13 miles off the coast of Newport Beach uh, when a UFO was suddenly right over their boat and seemed to be following him. Now, they were rightfully so freaked out, so they called the Coast Guard who said they would send a plane to investigate. But as soon as the Coast Guard said this, like, yep, we'll send you a plane to investigate, the UFO took off and was gone. So unfortunately, the Coast Guard never got a chance to look at it, but the family said it was there above them, and very close by, and silent. Again, that's not a helicopter. That's nothing that we had in the 50s. It's nothing that we have really nowadays that could do that. Sticking in the 50s, 55. Residents from northern California coastal town of Santa Maria observe a long, silvery object emerging from the ocean and taking off into space. Nowhere near Catalina, but it was going on around the same time, so I wanted to add that one on here. Uh, January 15th, 1956. Residents of Redondo Beach right over there, right by there, right by Catalina, that is, Um, report seeing a large glowing object glide down out of the sky and float on the surface of the ocean about 75 yards offshore, so very close to shore. Now, dozens of witnesses saw this, including a local night watchman, Redondo Beach lifeguards, and police officers from Hermosa Beach, nearby Hermosa Beach. The crowds gather. The water around the object starts to froth, they said. 
and the UFO sinks beneath the surface. The glow of the object, however, remains so intense that it can still be seen. Police officers radio for assistance, and divers are brought out to investigate, but by the time the divers arrive, they couldn't find the object. Another police officer tests the area with a Geiger counter, which fails to register any radiation. Another search the next day, no results. So, theoretically... I know this is 1956. Chances are the government got in there and got in there quick and got rid of whatever it was if it was a crashed UFO and not just a UFO going underwater. Theoretically, just off the coast, 75 yards offshore of Redondo Beach, California, might be a UFO or UFO wreckage. Really neat one. All righty, February 9th, 1956. Military personnel observe a fireball descending in the ocean off the coast of Redondo Beach. One year later, UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield obtains an official report on the incident, which says only, fireball hits water, submerges. So it's the definitely it's the same uh, instance, but at least it has a follow-up a month later. Uh, November 6, 1957, Playa del Rey, three cars driving along the Pacific Coast Highway, they all spot, or they, I'm sorry, they don't spot. They all suddenly stall when a large egg-shaped object surrounded in a blue haze lands on the beach only a few, hour, a few yards away. Witnesses Richard Kehoe, Ronald Burke, and Joe Thomas exit their cars and observe two strange-looking men disembarking from the object. The UFO occupants have a yellowish-green skin and wear black leather pants, white belts, and light-colored jerseys. Which you gotta say, which I gotta say is, you gotta admit, that's really hip and fashion forward from 1957. Black leather pants, white belts, and light colored jerseys. They say they walk up to the witnesses, begin asking questions, but they can't understand them because they're speaking some weird foreign language. After a few moments, a few moments, they go back into the UFO, which takes off, boom, out of sight. That same day, 3:50 p.m., an officer and 12 airmen from the Air Force detachment in nearby Long Beach observe. Again, six saucer-shaped objects zooming across the sky. Two hours later, officers at Los Alamitos Naval Air Station report seeing numerous objects crisscrossing the sky. Exact same time, police stations in Long Beach received more than 100 calls reporting UFOs. So, yeah, very weird. I mean, the outfits, everything about it seems very 50s and very not credible, but a lot of people saw it. So... I just don't know about that one. That one is a weird one. All right, let me take a quick drink of water. Of water, I'm not drunk. Uh, let's see, December 1957. The crew of the British steamship Ramsey observes a large metallic gray disc with antenna-like projections off the coast of San Pedro. One of the crewmen grabs his camera and captures a blurry photo of the object before it moves away. It is a very blurry uh, photo, a lot of websites have since enhanced that photo to make it look even cooler. But the original photo is very, it looks like a saucer with antennae off the bottom of it. Um, and it's very easily found. If you just type in Steamship Ramsey UFO, you will find the photo of the UFO. Chances are it's the enhanced version, but still very neat. All right, let's move on to the 60s. I'm running out of time here. July 28, 1962, the captain of a chartered fishing boat notices lights floating in a stationary position in the water about six miles south of Catalina Island. So he's like, oh, God, it's either a boat that's going down, and he thinks, you know, it's 1962, he thinks it's a Russian sub. And he goes, it appeared to be the stern of a submarine. We could see five men, two in white garb, two in dark trousers and white shirts, and one in a sky-blue jumpsuit. We passed a beam about a quarter mile, and it was certain that it was a submarine low in the water, steel gray, no markings, decks almost awash, with only its tail and odd aft structure showing. But suddenly, the submarine heads straight for the fishing boat as if to ram it. So the captain makes an emergency turn. The sub books past him at high speed, but leaving no noise and no wake. The captain contacts the Navy. Uh, they can't figure out if it's a sub. They have nothing on their radars or whatever. Um, they speculated it might not have been, it might have been a UFO and not a submarine because of the high speed, the lack of wake and sound, and the huge swell. Say these just, it just doesn't line up with UFO, or with uh, submarines, sorry. It doesn't line up with submarines of 1962. So that one, could it have been a submarine? Yes, sure, 100% could have. 
Could it have been the Russians? Sure, maybe. Could have been the Chinese. It could have been drug smugglers because they smuggle drugs in all the time using these weird handmade submarines. But it's unidentified and it doesn't fit the sounds and shapes and whatever, the speeds of a submarine for the time. So I'm adding it on here, even though that one I'm, eh, I don't know. I'm going to say chances are it wasn't a UFO, but it might have been. All righty, 1964, February 5th, 1964. Look, this one I'm not convinced was a UFO either. I mean, it's definitely unidentified, but you'll see what I mean in a second. 11 passengers are rescued by the Coast Guard from their emergency raft following the unexplaining sinking of their yacht, the Hattie D. The yacht, named the Hattie D., was sailing south down the coast of California from Seattle, Washington, when their yacht either struck or was rammed by an unidentified metal object. One of the crewmen, Carl Jansen, said, I don't care how deep it was, what holed us was steel and a long piece. There was no give at all. All right. Again, could have been a submarine. Could have been just floating debris. There's a lot of floating debris out there, and there's a lot of, like, oil derricks and everything out there. Again, this 1964. Could have been a sinking boat. It could have been a ton of other things other than a UFO. So it's unidentified, but I don't think it was a flying object. Now, this next one was most definitely a military exercise, which could explain for a few of these. December 2nd, 1965, Mrs. Irwin Cohen and her son observe a glowing red object descending into the sea off San Pedro, setting off a large cloud of steam. As the object descends, they snap some pictures. Now, they said they either witnessed a Navy missile or some unknown object. Guess what? It's probably a missile or a flare or military exercises that are still done on an island just off the island of Catalina. Nothing about this says UFO to me, but I'm adding it because... Yeah, some of these can be debunked, but not um, not the majority of them. But I want to add a few of the debunked ones in there for the skeptics that say, oh, it's just all the military. It's all military, dude. It's just military. Not everything on here can be explained by the military. Except for this next one. This next one has 100% been debunked as military equipment testing. But sadly, a lot of websites still say it's a UFO. Here you go. Remember. It's been 100% explained. October 1968, George Heiner is fishing in his boat off the east end of Catalina Island when he spots a white dome-shaped object through his binoculars. As he watches, the object rises 10 feet above the surface of the water, then descends and rises again. He notices a strange parachute-like device beneath the object, which gently descends, then sinks beneath the waves. It has been debunked. It has been proven to be military exercise, military equipment, part of an exercise, dropped from a plane with a parachute. All righty, May 1973, art director George Gray, not his real name, observes an object sending down a beam of light while driving along Pacific Coast Highway in Santa Monica just before dawn. Said the UFO was over where the beach was, hovering. I would say maybe 100, 200 feet in the air. It was all silver. It was your basic UFO. It was definitely completely metallic with a silver dome on top and a silver dome on bottom, like two plates put put together. And it had little lights around it. He said he saw other witnesses that looked at it. He pointed it like, you guys seeing this? And they're like, yeah, we're seeing that's a UFO. And then the object took off. The UFO took off. That one can't be explained by military equipment. I don't care who you are. Alrighty, up next, June 1980. We're in the 80s now. Uh, therapist Linda Susan Young and her friends are driving along Pacific Coast Highway in Santa Monica at night when they observe an unusually bright light floating in place several miles out to sea. So she asks her friend, I said to the guy with me, what do you suppose this is? And he turned around and looked at it. He only saw it for a second when it shot straight up in the air and blinked out. It didn't look like it went far enough to disappear from view like a distance. It just sort of stopped. It just stopped being there. I have always assumed it was a UFO. Yeah, that one can't be explained. It's not a missile. It's not anything. That's very UFO-ish. There's more in the 1980s. Let's see. Um, A senior electronics engineer sailing on a foggy day between Santa Barbara Island and Santa Cruz Island observes fluorescent green-colored light ahead of him in the mist. He thinks it's another ship um, trying to navigate the fog. He waits for it to pass, but... When it approaches, 
he is unable to distinguish any details of the object. When it's a quarter mile away, heading directly towards him, he says, I finally realized this dumb thing was underwater. I'm guessing it was, I don't know, maybe 300 feet in diameter, but I couldn't get any vertical dimensions on it because it was under me in the water. It literally passed directly underneath me. They said that uh, this guy was sailing a fully equipped 38-foot-long sailboat. As the object passed beneath him, he takes several readings from his depth sounder and determined that the object was about 100 feet deep. At this point, both depth, sound, depth, depth sounders, you can do it, Kurt, depth sounders stop working. He checks his compasses. All three of them were slowly rotating, and I wasn't. I tried calling the Coast Guard. The radio was dead. The UFO moves away and just disappears. And um, he said that right after that, boom, all of his stuff was broken. All of his equipment, all the compasses, everything was broken. He said it was weird. I was just too damn petrified to move. Explain that one, skeptics. All righty, next sighting, July 1987, group doing a night crossing from Catalina to Rancho Palos Verdes. A UFO hovered above their boat. They said it was metallic, made no sound at all, stayed over them for a bit, then just, boof, took off instantly. June 15th, 1982. Um, this one's actually got a case number, case 72642. A witness was sailing with his stepfather and mother to Catalina when around 8 p.m. his mother yelled back to look over the port side. I looked over and I saw a huge lighted object moving fast under the water. It lasts around five minutes just going from one side and then the next in a crisscross pattern. We sailed west moving away from it as we moved east. I never told anyone about this, nor do we talk about it. The object was 50 feet in a circle and was bright and more watts than I had ever seen. My parents stopped sailing after that summer. Oof, that's, that's spooky. Because I would love to. If I could afford a boat, I would totally get a boat so I could go to Catalina anytime I wanted. That might make me not want to do that. I mean, I still will if I could ever afford one. Summer of 88, um, photographer Kim Carlsberg observes a darting star-like object while relaxing in her Malibu beachfront home. Must be nice, Kim. Suddenly, the object moves directly towards her. The brilliant point of light advances until it becomes a luminous sphere some 50 feet in diameter. It ominously hung in the air 100 feet from my window. The apparent standoff lasted no more than a minute before the sphere darted as quickly as it appeared. It tore away diagonally through the night sky and vanished. Uh, let's see. 1990, investigator Bill Hamilton... Starting in late 1989, numerous witnesses in Marina del Rey began to have repeated encounters with strange blue-green lights in the water. In 1989 and again in 1990, witnesses have seen as many as 20 events an hour. One large light appeared to be as such as 100 feet in diameter. This large light spawned babies no, more, no larger than 10 to 12 feet in length. These lights were then seen to move quickly underneath the ocean surface some... 500 to maybe 1,000 feet from the coastline in Abalone Cove. One of the lights was reported to have emerged from the water. This is a very big one. One you hear quite a bit about Catalina Island and the USO or UFOs is these things are like racing under the water, then take off straight into the sky out of the water. And it happens, as you guys are hearing, I'm from the 50, from the 40s really, all the way to 1990 already, and it's happened in every decade. Something that's been happening there has been happening since the 40s and is still happening, spoiler, to this day. Uh, spring 91, uh, early hours, looks out his window, is this guy, Tony, looks out his window, is Malibu beachfront home. Uh, there's an object floating on the ocean surface about two miles away, looked like a big prism, kind of various colors to it. I got out a telescope and looked at it. After a few hours, the lights just went out. Two years later, 1993, he saw it again. I got the telescope out and I looked and it was the same kind of thing. The colors seemed so pure, for a lack of a better word, they seemed real coherent. He called up the Coast Guard, but they said they had no information on the object. May 5th, 1992, two people walking along Malibu Beach observed a sort of light fireball descend from the sky into the ocean. It was going at an incredible speed. It was less than a mile away, and it looked like it hit the ocean. Once the object made its way into the ocean surface, made its way to the ocean surface, it disappeared. Okay, that could have been a missile test. could have been a lot of things, but I wanted to add it because, again, every decade, there are some that I can explain and some that I can't. That's a possible explanation one. 94, two people walking near the coast of Rancho Palos Verdes see several glowing disks floating in the water. One of the witnesses returned at a later date, sees them again, 
He observes several black helicopters in the area. Later, he's confronted by an unnamed individual who tells him the area is off limits. Abalone Cove is off limits, which I don't know. I was living out here and in Palos Verdes in 1994. And it might have been just for that, that moment when someone showed up and was like, hey, you got to get out of here. But there's never been a case where Abalone Cove was off limits when I was out there. Uh, let's see. 1998, Adam and Mario, uh, one of them being military, driving across our long Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu, and they see six black diamond-shaped objects darting at high speed up and down the coast. They're so impressed by the brief sighting, they spend the next hour driving up and down the coast hoping to see them again. We, came, we did come across a couple people who were just sitting in their lawn chairs along the road. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but they were just like sitting there along the road just looking up. I would say that probably is. All right, now we're into the 2000s. A guy camping along the coast at Point Magoo sees a light moving back and forth 100 feet above the water and two other lights beneath the surface of the water. The objects dart back and forth in tandem for 30 minutes and dead silence. Uh, 19... Oh, this is 1989. I must have this in the wrong spot. Uh, right off the coast of Santa, Santa Catalina, 1989, a large object was observed by several witnesses. It was also picked up on sonar this time. It was floating on the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Several smaller UFOs released from the mothership prior to its submerging. Sonar tracking is headed its south towards the Santa Catalina Channel before it disappeared. And it had a lot of witnesses on that one. So that one I just put in the wrong thing. Let's see... There's one woman, her name is Ann Druffle. She says, this body of water lies between the coastlines of Southern California and Santa Catalina Island, 20 miles offshore to the southwest. The area has for at least 30 years been the scene of UFO reports of all kinds. Surface sightings of hazy craft, which cruise leisurely in full view of military installations, aerial spears bobbing in oscillating flight, gigantic cloud cigars, and at least one report of an underwater UFO with uniformed occupants. They say that even in the 60s, families were going down to the beach and waiting for UFOs to pass. By the 70s, whole families were down to the beach at Point Doom trying to catch the UFOs as well. Very close encounters of the third kind. For years, witnesses have seen so many types of UFOs cruising off the Palos Verdes Peninsula in Southern California that UFOs have actually been seen to come out of the water in the San Pedro Channel. Let's see, uh, 1982, this person said, my father, my stepfather and mother love sailing. Oh, we already, we already talked about this one. That's cool. But there's, I mean, what they're saying is basically for decades, really, people would just hang out right there on Point Doom or closer to, to Catalina and see UFOs on a very, very regular basis. Uh, let's see, there's a pilot named Noah Felice or Felis who claimed that a USO shot a beam of light at his small plane, causing it to crash and resulting in the death of his cousin, not to mention severe injuries to himself. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically about it. We're over an hour into it. I mean, there's more and more of these stories than in the 2010s and the 2020s. They just keep going on. I'll probably do another episode about it. But as you heard, Probably at, you know, two times speed. Or if you want to have fun, here's something fun for you guys to do with the podcast. Listen to it at 0.5 speed. It sounds like I'm a drunk at a bar trying to tell you all about Catalina and UFOs. I sound really drunk if you listen to it at 0.5 speed. It's That's how I like to listen to me. But as you guys just heard, there have been 150 plus, that's 150 plus UFO sightings in and around the waters of of Catalina. Now, sure, some can be explained by active military installations nearby, bioluminescent algae in the waters that we know are there, but these only explain like a small percentage. So what about the rest of them? Now, I really want to end with, you know, something more, but I'll be honest, I have no idea why this area is so packed with UFO sightings. Usually I want to do like a nice little wrap up or reasoning behind it, but I don't have one. I have no idea why every decade since 1947, since the 40s, every decade since the 40s, there have been numerous, hundreds of UFO and USO sightings in that area. I don't know. It's not just UFOs either. 
there is a ton of paranormal things that happen on Catalina Island itself, but that's an episode for another time because, you know, haunted Catalina, that's coming too, don't worry. But UFOs over Catalina and around Catalina? I have no idea. Again, yeah, you can say, well, there's a military installation just off the island. Their military still do practices there. Sure. Yep, you're right. They sure do. But that doesn't explain some of the very detailed, that doesn't explain six flying saucers flying in formation that was seen decade after decade. Does not explain that at all. I don't care who you are. That doesn't explain that one. So, so what does? I have no idea. What do you guys think is happening over in Catalina Island? Do you think it's only being spotted because of how popular Catalina Island is? I mean, there's always people going there night and day to Catalina Island or coming home from Catalina Island back to the mainland. Is that the reason? Is that there's, it's just a, like a little freeway, if you will, for boats back and forth. And it's a common freeway. So you're going to be, there's more people. So you're going to see more things. If we had more people traveling to the other islands in those, you know, it's that same area, would they be seeing them over there as well? Probably, you know, probably, but I don't know. I will also say, um, before I, before I let you guys go, um, there's a very cool tour that I want to do. I've been trying to get my friends to get on board with it and nobody wants to get on board with it, but it sounds amazing to me. You get the long beach in the morning, like bright and early in the morning. They put you in a wetsuit, you jump on a wave runner and then you ride a wave runner. It's a two and a half hour trip from Long Beach to Catalina on wave runners. It's you and like a tour guide and how many other people are on their wave runners for that day. And you stop midway, like deep, deep ocean midway by a buoy. And you get to swim and play with like dolphins and sea life and sea lions and whales. I mean, they, sh they see shit all the time. This sounds absolutely incredible to me. Then you get to Catalina Island you get to party and whatever on a private beach or just go into the to the shops and the bars and the restaurants of Catalina for a couple hours. Back on the Wave Runners, another two and a half hour ride back home. Boom, you're done. It's a one day trip. So I can just leave rum at home and go ahead and do that and have some fun. And it sounds like an absolute blast. But what if as I'm riding on a tiny little Wave Runner, you know, obviously the what if is, what if I'm riding on the tiny little wave runner and there's a fucking shark? Yeah, you know, like, I don't need that kind of stuff. I'm, uh, I, you know, you can pee in a wetsuit, so it's not the end of the world, but that's terrifying. But what if for this episode, I'm riding on that wave runner and then below me are crazy spherical ships, UFOs underwater, all lit up and shit. I got nowhere to go. I'm on a tiny little wave runner. It's not like I'm even in a boat. It's terrifying enough on a boat. Imagine being on a tiny little wave runner and that happens. I'm still going to do it. Don't get me wrong. I, I will definitely do this. I don't care that none of my friends want to do it. I got I got some friends that are afraid that, you know, like, oh, God, I can't be in the ocean. That's that's terrifying. I got other friends that are like, that sounds tiring. No, fuck that noise. It sounds awesome. I'm going to do it whether it's by myself or if I get some friend to go with me. But no matter what, I'm going to do it. Uh, but yeah, that, all right. Well, that about does it. That about does it for this, this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac. What do you guys think is happening in Catalina Island? Why is it happening so often? Is it something on the island or something in that area, something in that channel? I mean, there's been TV shows that have gone through and, and checked the, you know, with like sonar and boats and scanning and stuff. And they found stuff in that channel. That's like, yeah, that shouldn't be there, including like large dumps of DDT barrels and weird shit like that. So, I mean, there's something going on in there, and it sounds absolutely terrifying. But once again, I'm your host, Kurt Savig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Lost so we get na we lick and I got so far we they went in lack at nest.